Well, let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the morning, and thank you for the, the sunshine, and thank you for the fact that we're here in this place, and the graduates that we got to celebrate and to worship your name, and thank you that you truly are uh, someone to be celebrated and walks beside us, and you are our victory. So may my words be your words, may your words convict, may they open us up to what you may have for us, and may they transform. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Ray Green, serve here at Graceland, and it's great to be here with all of you this morning. I want to welcome you also for our guests. I want to welcome our guests here this morning. I want to welcome those who are maybe watching online or yet to worship with us. Look forward to having you here. And we're coming off of a fantastic Mother's Day last week. We had nearly 1,700 people in, in attendance at Graceland last week. And just to give you a little bit of, a, a, of kind of perspective, last year we had 1,335. That means that we have seen in the last year almost 21% growth at Graceland. And that, my friends, is incredible. Uh, we are seeing God bless in unbelievable ways. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're inviting people and you're wanting to include people in what God is doing here at this church. And we're so excited about it. So much, in fact, that we've got a parking problem. And uh, we are working on that parking problem. We're working on a long-term solution we'll be sharing with you in the coming weeks. Until then, let's just mind what the Bible says to say about parking, that spiritual people park far away from the building. All right? So if you love Jesus, you'll park far away. Um, but we're excited about it. Keep inviting people. Keep packing it out. And we're going to just see what God has to, uh, wants to do in the life of our church. You know, we're looking forward to Father's Day in just a few weeks. My good friend, mentor Bob Russell, former senior pastor at Southeast Christian Church, is going to be our guest here on Father's Day. And uh, Bob was with us last year. We're looking forward to it this year. He's a prolific author, and you're not going to want to miss what he has to share with us. He's going to be ending our series on Joseph. So mark your calendars, all right? We're excited about that. Now, speaking of calendars, uh, I had kind of a hard week this last week. This last week, um, I put to rest my grill. Now, there's something special about a man's grill, all right? It's something that's you're just a guy and his grill, we bond. We bonded over the last 10 years together, but she rusted out. I was hoping to get one more summer with her, but she rusted out. And so my wife is helping me carry the grill off of the back deck. And as we're carrying off the back deck, it's been 10 long years. And she jokingly had been wanting me to buy a grill for a couple years now. And, and she said, would you like for me to play taps as we uh, walk this grill off? I didn't think it was funny. <laughs> May she rest in peace. I mean, the grill, the grill, all right? <laughs> She's right there, okay? May the grill rest in peace. And you know, now the grill, she's just a rusted out piece of metal, completely unsalvageable. And I say that because that is exactly how we feel oftentimes. We feel like we're just a rusted out, unsalvageable piece of junk that we've been put away, that we're unusable, that there's no way that God could make sense of the mess that we have put ourselves in or that we find ourselves in. Or maybe you look at the world, even though we had a royal wedding yesterday, right? We look at the world and for the most part, we see all of the injustice because of racism or we see all the moral failures and unthinkable things like the, the shooting in Texas that happened. And I'll be honest, maybe you feel this way. You don't know how to react. Maybe you, you feel the same way that I do. I, you don't even know what to do. 
Well, if, if you feel like this, or you feel like that you've just, you know, you've been put to the, to the, you've been put on the sidelines, you've been put on the shelf, you don't feel like that your life could actually make sense in any way. Well, I don't want you to know you're in the right spot today because you're going to meet a man who feels just like you do. His name is Joseph. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. If you'd like to turn there, if you'd like to open that on your smartphone or a tablet or on the Bible, it's in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. It'll be our gift to you. Genesis chapter 37. And as we go through this series together, there is going to be a theme that we're going to revisit. And the theme is this. You're going to make it. Let's say that a lot together. Ready? You're going to make it. You see, you're going to make it. It's not going to be like you thought it would be. It's going to take longer than you want it to take. But you're going to make it. With God, you're going to make it. There was a friend of mine. He gave me a call. He said, I need to talk to you right now. And so I went out and spent some time with him. And he told me that his wife had passed away unexpectedly to a disease they didn't even know about. And as I sat there next to my friend and he cried for hour upon hour, and I sat beside him through all of that, we began to put a plan together over the next few hours of what his life was going to look like and what we were going to do to memorialize his wife. And at the end of it, I looked at his eyes and I said these words, you're going to make it. It may not be like you thought it'd be like. It may take longer than you wanted it to take. But you're going to make it. With God, you're going to make it. And maybe you feel like my friend. Or maybe you're like my other friend. He called me up one day, said, Ray, I need to meet with you. And so I went and met, met with him. And we sit down and we begin to discuss some things. And he begins to share with me that his wife, he'd found out just previously that his wife had multiple affairs on him. And he devastated him. It broke him to the very core. And so because he was so angry out of revenge, he went out and had a se a several affairs on her. And now the, heart, the heartbreak is now compounded, right? And now they find themselves not knowing what to do with three children, beautiful children, all the money. They, they didn't know what to do with all the money they had, and yet their hearts are broken. And he says, I don't know what to do, Ray. And after several hours of talking with him and meeting him with him for week after week after week, his marriage began to be put back together again. And I said to him, you're going to make it. It won't be like you thought it would be. It won't be quick. You're going to have to fight for the right things. But with God, you're going to make it. Now, you, your story may not be like this story, but I'm confident of this, that as we unpack and meet this man named Joseph, you're going to understand and be able to take to the bank this principle from God. You're going to make it. Now, why am I so confident about that? Well, I'm confident because Joseph had dreams he had a fantastic future. And yet all of those dreams, all those things are completely dashed upon rocks. And we're, so we're going to go back to the beginning. We're not going to go right to the point where his dreams are dashed. We're going to start at the very beginning. And if you have a, your listening guide today, you're going to look at it. Number one, his fantastic future. Look at it with me in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed. 
the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now let's just stop right there. So we get to chapter 37. There's not been any really mention of Joseph, and we're introduced to Joseph's family. His dad, Jacob, number one, he's called Israel here, but his real name is Jacob. And even though J Joseph is the younger than the family, and he's kind of the runt of the litter in many ways, and he's an assistant shepherd, he had a fantastic future in front of him. Back in the day, there was this TV commercial, and it was about Michael Jordan, and the jingle went, I want to be, I want to be like Mike, if I could be like Mike. How many of you remember that commercial? Yeah, I remember it so very well. Well, in 1600 BC, 3,600 years ago, Israel TV was playing, I want to be, I want to be like Joe. That's where it was like. Because Joseph had a fantastic future. Look at it with me in verse 3 and following. It says, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. Underline that. Document that. Verse 4, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any other, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. They'll stop right there. So here you have the younger brother. He's the favorite of dad. His dad's blatant about it. He didn't even try to hide it like most of us try to do when we have favorites. He's daddy's boy. Everybody knows it. When everyone else has to share a bathroom, Joseph gets his own. When everyone else has a flip phone, Joseph has the iPhone 10. When everyone else drove the family minivan as their first car, Joseph gets a new Jeep Wrangler with a one-inch lift. That's Joseph. And how, how does he prove it? Well, his dad gives him an ornate robe. That's a big deal in this culture. It was a coat of many colors, as other translations say. Basically, it was a long sleeve robe. And as we understand from ancient Mediterranean art, we have an example of illustrious, beautiful colors, rich people wearing these robes. It was a statement to say, I'm a big deal and you're not. It was a robe that superseded even the older brother Reuben. The oldest always were the best in that culture. They were always given the most in inheritance sake. And yet the younger brother now is superseding. So here you have all these brothers hating their younger brother. It's 1600 BC, 3600 years ago, and you have a Bronze Age dysfunctional family. Can you relate? <laughs> and Joseph becomes the target of his brother's anger. Look at it in verse 5 and following, you see examples. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves out of grain in the field, when suddenly my sheaf arose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to mine. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? Now underline this next phrase. And they hated him all the more. They hated him. Think about it with me for a second before we continue. Joseph, he feels compelled to share this dream. And like we share to our friends and our family, hey, I got this weird dream last night. Let me tell it to you. He begins to share the dream. Do you think his brothers like it? No, they hate it. Let me get this straight, little brother. We're all bowing down to you. You got a coat of many, many colors. Oh yeah, this is great. They're thrilled. No, in fact, it says they hated him all the more. 
The verb there, it captures their disposition. Then in verse 9, we continue to read. Then he had another dream. (laughs) Oh, goody, right? And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father and as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come, come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So Joseph has another dream, and this time his dad bows down to him, which in that culture would be like the Queen of England coming up to you and bowing down before you, which would never happen. That's how preposterous this culture in this statement really is. Now let's keep reading in verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, Well, what are you looking for? He replied, Well, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? Well, they have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in a distance. Look at this. And before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. So stop there for a moment before we continue. So here's the deal. His dad draws Joseph close. Hey, Joseph, I want you to go spy on your brothers for me. I want you to go on a long journey. This is a long journey in their culture to go from where they live, Hebron to Shechem. It's about 50 miles. And so he goes on a long journey, 50 miles, to where they're going to be. He gets there. There's no one around. He goes another 13 miles to Dothan. Now he's gone 63 miles. He's gone a long way to spy on his big brothers. And they see him coming, and they see. Verse 19, look what they say. Here comes that, what does it say? Dreamer. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, underline this next phrase, let's kill him. His own brothers, come now, let's kill him. And throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. And underline this last phrase, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So Joseph, he's coming. They can see him coming. It's been a long distance that he's been coming. They know why he's coming to spy on him. And they say, here comes that dreamer. And the original language that the Old Testament was written in, which is Hebrew, when they say this phrase, here comes this dreamer, it's a very sarcastic tone. Like they're rolling their eyes. Here comes that dreamer. I mean, this is, this is big time dysfunctional type stuff. And they say, you know what? Let's kill him. Everybody in? Let's 
kill our brother. These are his own brothers. Now, it's one thing to dislike your family. It's one thing to like to struggle with your brother, your sister. But another thing to say, let's kill him. These are the 12 leaders of the tribes of future Israel here saying these words. And so what they do is they throw him in a cistern. We've got a picture on the screen of what a cistern looks like. They throw him in a well, and the well is kind of looks like an old Coke bottle. It's kind of narrow up top, and it gets bigger at the bottom, and it's lined in lime so that the water wouldn't leak out of the cistern. And they throw him in there, and it's empty, so he goes all the way to the bottom, and he's crushed at the bottom. So are his dreams. So here's Joseph in a pit. But here's where the story gets really good. And here's where I want you to lean forward and I want you to listen up and I'd love for you to take good notes and really document what's about to happen. You see, in the middle of the pit is where we find maybe ourselves as well. When we find ourselves, when life is in the pits. See, I'm sure you can hear Joseph scream all the way down to the pit. I'm sure you could picture him, his, his, his tunic being torn off of his body, his identity stripped of him, him then basically punching him and wrestling. I don't think he went with just like, okay, guys, I'll let you throw me into the pit. They throw him into the pit. I can hear him crushing to the ground. No other place to go right there at the very bottom. Probably maybe a broken rib, a couple of broken wrists. He's all damaged. He's wearing basically nothing. He's bleeding and he's in a pit. Have you ever been in a pit before? Not physically, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Have you ever been in a pit? When your life is going pretty well and everything's going just fine and you're on your way to do something and then all of a sudden you're thrown into a pit, your identity stripped. I want to share with you a few things about a pit this morning. The first thing that I want you to know about a pit is a pit will blindside us. Maybe it's a layoff from work or maybe it's a horrible disease like cancer. You're going along, everything's good, and boom, you hit a pit, and you're blindsided by it. Or or maybe you've invested so much into your marriage. You've put everything you have, you've done all that you can, and then your wife or your husband, they're unfaithful to you. It catches you off guard, and you're blindsided, and you find yourself just sitting in the pit. Or maybe you cannot find the right job, and you've worked so hard, and all of your dreams have been dashed, and you find yourself blindsided. Or maybe you poured your life into your child and you've done everything you can to get them to the place where you dreamed that they would be and you've done your very best to disciple them as best that you possibly can to see them walk and follow Christ. And then seemingly the case, they take your coat and you're blindsided by the decisions they make. A pit not only blindsides us, but number two, a pit can leave us in a place where we feel like it was undeserved. Maybe we were abandoned by mom or dad. Maybe we've been abused or molested. Maybe we've been hurt in unthinkable ways by horrible people. And it was undeserved. Or maybe you stood for the right thing. And because you stood for the right thing, you were hampered or you were restricted or you were fired or you were given a one-way ticket on, the, on a wrong-way road. A pit can also leave us in an undeserved spot, right? But finally, I love how Max Lucado says this, a pit 
is uncharted future. You see, his brothers did this to him, right, Joseph? If his brothers can do this to him, well, then you know what? Anything can happen to any one of us. There was an old show on TV. It was called Hee Haw. You remember that old show? Hee Haw. And there used to be this phrase in Hee Haw that would say, if it weren't for bad luck, we'd have no... Yeah, you're older than I thought you were. <laughs> Joseph's in a pit. It, it completely took his dreams. It blew him up. There's disaster and heartache, and his life is completely being threatened. And I help, can't help but wonder... Has this ever happened to you? Let me tell you this, friends. For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, the pit never has the last word. You see, your story isn't over. Just like Joseph's story isn't over. I'm going to give you a sneak peek to the very end of the, the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph is in a completely different place. And he says these words in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me. He's speaking to his brothers now. He's alive, as you can see, many years later. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And here's what I want you to understand here, that the Joseph isn't bitter. Joseph is on an incredible journey, as we'll learn. And through that journey, he learns this, that he's going to make it. It wasn't like he thought it was going to be. It, didn't, it took a lot longer than he thought it would take. He would have to fight for the right stuff, but he's going to make it. And I want you to take note of what Joseph says here in verse 20. He says, you intended it for evil. He's speaking to his brothers. And then he said, but God intended it for good. Now, this word intended, I want you to circle that in your Bible. The word intended in that original language has to do with weaving together fabric and tapestry. You see, when you take a bunch of um, things, threads, and you begin to weave them together, at first you don't really see what it looks like, but after a while, all of a sudden this beautiful design springs before you. And the question is, who is doing the weaving? The architect, the master builder, the grand weaver, God himself. And he's sovereignly weaving our lives in such a way that even when others intend it for evil, God intends it for good. You see, you're going to make it. It won't be like you thought it would be. It's going to take maybe a lot longer than you thought. You're going to have to fight for it. But with God, you're going to make it. And what we begin to see in the life of Joseph and what we see in our own life is that there's this promise that we can hold on to. And if you're following along and you're listening, God, it's number three that you can fill in. You're going to make it. You see, this is God's redemptive hope for our lives. And like I said earlier, he's weaving this incredible story together, right? And if we can trust the grand weaver the, in the, the bottom of the pit, we can find purpose. If we can trust the grand weaver, even in the middle of the dysfunction, we can see a dynamic life emerge. When we can trust the grand weaver, the, the pit will begin to prod us, right? To not concentrate on our problems, but to put our focus on God. And the Bible demonstrates this, this in all, not only in Joseph's life, but also in many other lives as well. In Psalm 107, verse 6, it says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He, what, Daniel, he faced a pit of lions, didn't he? Esther, she faced a pit 
of a deck stacked against her, that Jesus would face a pit of sin that the world had thrown on his shoulders. And in every single time, what did they learn? That they're going to make it. Another thing to learn and to understand when you're going to make it is that it's not going to always be the timing that you thought. That means it's going to maybe take a little longer than you anticipated or it may be really quick he's going to fix everything or he's going to take a long, long time to fix everything. Notice the ages. Joseph was 17 when he had the dreams and he's in his 30s or 40s when the dreams he had begin to crystallize before his eyes. See, God's timing isn't our timing, friends. God may act quick. He may act slow. I love it how one author, he says it this way. Look, when you see a mess, well, God sees the miracle. See, you're going to make it, but it's not going to always be on the timing that you thought. And so in the middle of the pit, in the middle of the crisis, I want you to know something. That in the middle of the pit, you are a sitting duck, friend, for a stupid decision, for an addiction, for a broken relationship for a distancing of your family and friends. And when all those things begin to occur, you can trace them all the way back to the moment when you fell in the pit and you begin to make those dumb, stupid decisions. Or when you find yourself in the pit, you can literally look at it as a greenhouse for growth. And that leads me to number four, the pit becomes our promotion in this life. You see, when your life is in the pits, friends, it can be a promotion. Did you know that? I want to give you nine quick ways it promotes our life in the pit. Number one, the pit smokes out idols in our life. Did you know that when you fall into a pit, all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, I was worshiping money. I was worshiping the dream. I was worshiping this. I was worshiping that. All of a sudden you realize that your God is not really God. It's actually something in your life. Number two, the pit drives us to pray. It's a good thing when you talk to your father. Number three, the pit calls back wandering souls. Maybe you've wandered far away and you find yourself in a pit. All of a sudden, God's calling you back and all of a sudden, you begin to hear him a little bit better. Number four, the pit, it humbles proud hearts. Everything's going well. You begin to think, man, this is all my own doing. Man, I, I'm kind of a big deal. You fall into the pit and all of a sudden, you're reminded once again, maybe I'm not such a big deal. Number five, the pit is ice water on sleepy souls. Wakes you up. Number six, the pit sweetens promises. In the bottom of the pit, the promises of God become a little sweeter and you trust a little harder. Number seven, the pit teaches compassion. When you've walked through a series of victories, maybe it's hard to be compassionate, but when you've been in the pit, my friend, you can look, watch other people in the pit and you go, I know how I feel. Number eight, the pit produces confidence in God. Because certainly not on you. And number nine, the pit will sink us in bitterness or give us freedom to fly. You see, when you're in the pit and you get angry and resentful and bitter, you're not really angry at yourself for the situation. You're angry at God for allowing it to happen. And if you let that fester, you will become an inferno of destruction. 
Here's what's amazing about the whole thing. Joseph finds himself in Egypt 20, 30 years later, and he's second in command. He's placed in the most prominent position in the entire nation, the ruling nation on the planet. And you see, here's the deal. He's not only now put into a position to save the very people that wanted to kill him, but save other millions of, of others as well. Here's the deal. You see, his brothers didn't really send him to Egypt. God did. And the question is, what are we going to do in the pit? How are we going to face the situation? What are we going to do? See, you can't change your situation. You can't change the details of the pit. What you can do is remind yourself of the faith that you have in, in Christ. I love in Hebrews chapter 13 what it says. God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No circumstances or situations of slander or brokenness. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You may fully never understand the reason why you're in the pit. Maybe not on this side of eternity. But what you can understand is this. Just like Joseph, Christ had his own pit, and it was the cross. Think about it with me. Christ, he was given away for just a few pennies on the dollar. He was betrayed by the people that were closest to him. And number three, he suffered to eventually and save the people who betrayed him. He didn't go from a pit to a palace like Joseph. What he did is he went from the cross to the grave, from the grave to sitting at the right hand of the Father. And what brings me comfort in the cross and in the, in the pit that Jesus went through is not the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father and looks down and says to me, hey, Ray, everything's going to be okay. That doesn't seem so good because he sits at a better spot than I do. Where I find comfort in the middle of the pit is that he says, I'm going to come beside you. I'm going to go with you in the suffering. You're not going to take this burden on by yourself. You're not just going to walk this path by yourself. He is saying to you, look, you're never alone. You're never alone. You're never alone. And the only way to look in a pit is up. You're going to make it. It may take longer than you wanted it to take. You're going to have to fight for the right things. But with God, you're going to make it. Will you bow your head with me? With all heads bowed and eyes closed, no looking around. This sermon is for you, some of you in this room. Joseph's story is for you. And I don't know what pit you're in. But if that's for you, if you're going through something, will you just raise your hand where you are? Raise your hand up high for me. Tell God, no one's really looking around. Just say, God, right now I'm in this pit. And I want you to hold, keep holding your hand up and I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, in this moment now, I pray for your people, those holding their hands up, would feel your presence would feel your faithfulness, would feel your comfort and know that in the middle of the 
darkest, deepest pit, that you're there. And the pit will not have the last word, but the pit will be a growth point, a promotion point in their life. And those who are raising their hands up, Lord, I pray that it would signify a new day for them today. And that possibly it will bring them back from wandering or maybe it will bring them back to calling upon you or it'll bring them back and put their eyes back on you. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd begin to bring them comfort, bring them strength, God, in the middle of whatever they're going through, in the middle of this pit. In your name we pray. Amen.